Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. This is my weekly hour to bend your ears, do a little ranting, interview some guests, and cover some issues that are breaking. And I tell you, they're really breaking this week. It's just been an, uh, an orgy of uh, issues to try and keep track of. Usually, you know, throughout the summer, anyways, it was hard. You, you're trying to things to come up, come up with things to write columns on in the political realm and things like that, and it's slow. Right now, the hard part is trying to figure out what exactly to cover. There is so much going on. It's, it's just been a bizarre, crazy couple of weeks in Canadian politics and news in general. So I've got a good packed show today. A little later, I'll have uh, Paige McPherson on. It'll cool things down a little bit, but it's a very important uh, discussion. She's with the Fraser Institute, and they released a study on the impacts of the school closures due to COVID over that period of time. You know, we haven't had enough people looking back say, well, was it worth it? Were the shutdowns worth it? Were there benefits to be had? And of course, most importantly, what sort of damage was done? You know, having children out of school for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time was not good for them. It came at a cost to them. And they've studied that and put out a report on it. So I'm looking forward to that. Of course, uh, we'll have our check-ins and things such as that too. And yes, this is live for a lot of you. Use that comment section, guys. Send those comments my way, questions my way, things like that. Discuss things with each other. I like seeing things being active in there. Just remain civil, that's all. We can be good to each other. So, yes, I'm going to get on about, of course, the biggest event of the week, a really unbelievable one. It was one of those times the world really was watching. And we had Ukrainian President Zelensky. He was a guest to the House of Commons. The Liberals were celebrating another injection of 600 million Canadian tax dollars going into the Ukrainian war effort. It was a big feel-good moment. Then the entire house rose and they gave it an ovation and an applause to a Nazi. Yeah, I'm not, I didn't have a slip of the tongue. And I'm not talking about a figurative Nazi or a comical Nazi like the soup chef in a Seinfeld episode. Not some goose-stepping neo-Nazi idiot with a shaven head and a swastika tattoo. No, and this wasn't even a, a conscript from the German army in World War II or a simple member of the Nazi party from those times. No. The fellow they were applauding actually served in one of Hitler's SS Waffen units in World War II. This was a true, dyed-in-the-wool, literal Nazi. I mean, that, that term gets thrown around so much that we really have to couch it this time with, no, this is the real thing. Now, due to the passage of time, thankfully, it's actually quite difficult to find real Nazis these days. But credit where due, the government managed to dig one up and bring him into the House of Commons. House Speaker, or I should say former House Speaker, Anthony Rota has fallen on his sword for the issue now and claims the invitation of the Nazi was solely his own action. Now, while Rhoda certainly appears culpable, it beggars belief that this Nazi slipped through the vetting into the House of Commons with no examination. It's no coincidence that a Ukrainian veteran happened to be introduced to the House by the Speaker on the same day the President of Ukraine happened to be there. It was a staged, jingoistic event that was supposed to show a common front of support for Ukrainians against Russian aggression. The problem was with which war Yaroslav Hunka fought against the Russians in. Now, I'm going to speculate on what probably happened. I could be wrong. This is what I figure happened. I imagine an order went out to liberal members just to ask him, try and seek out a Ukrainian veteran, you know, who stood up to the Russians to celebrate in the house while we have uh, Zaliski here. Some staffer went scurrying about and managed to find Yaroslav Hunka. It was probably a young staffer. If you go to Ottawa, you see them all the time. You know, they're usually rushing around in ill-fitting suits. And it didn't occur to him that if a person's 98 years old, Ukrainian, and fought against the Russians, it's almost a sure thing he served in one of Hitler's Waffen-SS units. 
and he volunteered to join that unit. He wasn't conscripted. I've seen some liberal supporters doggedly trying to point out how Hunka wasn't a, among the worst of the Nazis. That's absurd, and it's not doing their cause any favors. I don't care if nowadays Hunka is the sweetest father and grandfather on the planet, you know, and, had, and did a, a good job later in life. I don't care if he was the friendliest Nazi in his unit, that he never forgot anybody's birthday or won the Mr. Nazi Congeniality Award every time there was an SS convention. He was a Nazi and never should have been invited to the House of Commons, much less applauded. Some actions and life choices lead to a permanent stigma being applied. Joining one of Hitler's SAS units during World War II is one of those life choices. The leader of a nation in the middle of a war was a guest in the House of Commons, and he unwittingly found himself joining the rest of the room and applauding a Nazi. The damage done went beyond just humiliating Canada and a guest on the world stage. Vladimir Putin was surely laughing for hours as Canada managed to create a public relations coup for him. While Justin Trudeau wasn't directly involved in this latest national embarrassment, it still happened on his watch. The Prime Minister's office surely was behind the planning for this grand event, and if their office didn't vet attendees, it must be asked why they didn't. Could any MP just bring in whoever they please and have them recognized by the House without any question or vetting? I doubt it. This is just one debacle piling onto a year of embarrassments from the Trudeau government. Every policy they touch becomes a mess, and every event becomes a controversy. We're seeing a government in its dying stages. They're tired out and in disarray. They're directionless and basically leaderless. Rather than trying to address the issues, of course, Trudeau went into hiding. or He's trying to distract from things. The Liberals tried and failed even to get unanimous consent to have the whole incident stricken from the public record. Yeah, they, they actually wanted to get that thrown out just so we pretend it never happened. Uh, thankfully, a Conservative member said, no, 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 no. That's going to stay in there, as embarrassing as it is. Canadian government under Justin Trudeau is dysfunctional and unsustainable. Trudeau's days as Prime Minister are clearly numbered. Even if Trudeau never gets it, his caucus had better bloody well figure it out and fast. The scandals are piling up faster, and the embarrassments are hitting new heights with every month that they allow him to keep sitting as the Liberal leader. If Trudeau isn't removed by the next election, the Liberal Party is going to be utterly decimated. And while that sounds appealing, I don't like to imagine the damage that Dingbat could cause if he had two more years in power. Wake up, guys. Think about that. I mean, just, just back up and think for a moment. We had a standing ovation and, and an applause for a true, literal, living Nazi in our House of Commons. You, you can't make this sort of thing up. This government's just a mess. All right. Well, of course, everybody heard about that. And as somebody else pointed out, yeah, Justin Trudeau, I believe, is making a statement. Finally, he's popped his head up. That's happening right now as I speak. But we'll get the highlights of that a little later, I'm sure. And we'll check in with the newsroom and see what else is going on. And maybe there's been a few words out of Trudeau worth uh, mentioning from our news editor, Dave Naylor, and uh, see what's happening. Hey, Dave, how's it going? It's going well, Corey. Uh, yeah, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau just seconds ago uh, finished a statement where he, he apologized on behalf of the parliament. Didn't really apologize on behalf of uh, himself, but on behalf of the parliament. He said it was uh, uh, obviously a very embarrassing uh, situation. So uh, that story is being typed up right now uh, by uh, Jonathan Bradley. But uh, hey, I'm more excited what the what the beer fairy or the bee fairy uh, b brought this morning. That's very yes. cool. That's direct from your hive, eh? It is a genu genuine Pritis honey. I'm looking forward to it. Actually, I'm going to give it to my daughter because she's oh. the uh, she's the honey expert. But uh, I'll let you know how she's what she thinks. Well, much appreciated. It's had good reviews so far. Good, awesome. Uh, lots of news this morning, Corey. Uh, where to begin? We'll begin in Paris, uh, shall we? Where uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Wilkinson has uh, 
released these sort of guidelines that uh, uh, Canada is committing to to uh, uh, cap emissions. He confirms that there will be an oil and gas uh, cap, but he doesn't say when. It says it's still under development. And if you uh, if you remember, this is uh, the line that uh, Premier Daniel Smith uh, drew in the sand uh, and said, you guys better not cross it. Well, they haven't crossed it quite yet, uh, but it seems pretty obvious uh, they're on their way. Uh, lots of news on the E. coli scandal in Calgary, where uh, hundreds of uh, young children have been uh, stricken down. Turns out it was bad meatloaf uh, that led the way. Uh, that, that seems to have caused it. Uh, combined with a vegan meatloaf. And uh, the city of Calgary has charged the uh, kitchen uh, without operating a, uh, with, with operating without a license. And uh, that's a fine of up to $120,000 if, uh, if convicted. Uh, we've got some good news uh, out there on the, uh, the Taylor family has put in an additional $3 million to the new polar bear exhibit uh, that's going to be opening up uh, very, very quickly. And uh, they, it brings their uh, com- their combined uh, donation to more than $11 million. So uh, these polar bears coming in from Winnipeg, they're going to have a life of luxury uh, uh, that no other captive polar bear probably has. And some amazing scenes uh, last night in the, in Philadelphia, uh, where basically shop you can go shoplifting anywhere you want now in uh, in the United States and uh, and not get charged. And they had some uh, some mob scenes where. Uh, People were, we won't call it shoplifting, we'll call it looting, uh, looting stores. And this comes on the heels of uh, Target announcing they were uh, closing stores uh, uh, across the U.S. Uh, to try and battle some of this uh, this economic loss that they're being faced with, uh, with mob looting. So uh, tons of stuff uh, already up, Corey. We've got uh, uh, a column by our own Paul Forseth, who actually used to be a speaker, uh, fill in for a speaker uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, insight uh, found only on the Western Standard, Corey. So uh, as mentioned, Jonathan's typing up the Trudeau stuff and uh, no doubt we're going to have a lively question period uh, kicking off in about 15 minutes. Great. Well, thanks for the update. And uh, again, the, the plug for that Prittis Honey, I'm afraid, yeah, I don't make quite enough to, to make a commercial venture of it, but it's good to know somebody out there might be appreciating it. Yeah, I'm sure we all do. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Corey. Thanks, Dave. So that is our news editor, Dave Naylor. And yeah, you can see those stories just keep piling up and, uh, you know, lots to cover. We've got Jonathan Bradley out there hammering away and Sean and others. The, the stories are, are behind a paywall, but it's only $9.99 a month, guys, $100 for a year. And that's how we can stay independent. That's how we keep putting these stories out, whether the government likes us to or not. We don't take any tax dollars. So again, we've, the subscribers have been fantastic so far, and that's why we're still going, but we always need more and we can expand. We can cover more stuff. So check it out. If you're not a subscriber yet, go to westernstandard.news slash membership. Take one out. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And it's, it's, it's an investment for yourself. You get all that uh, full access to all of those stories as they come out and break. Uh, let's see, uh, somebody, uh, commenter, uh, Theo Thurm saying Trudy's blaming everyone but himself right at this moment. Yeah, that's not to be too surprised at the conference. We didn't really expect him to take responsibility. It's not been a hallmark, but you know, I just would have thought eventually somebody's got to be twisting that guy's arm saying, look, that's enough. That's enough. You got to go. There was that caucus meeting late last night or cabinet meeting, something going on. Some people were speculating maybe, uh, Looks like nothing's changed. They feel they can manage to right this ship and, and hold the course. It's, it's like I said at the end of my opening. 
I mean, I, I think they'll get themselves down to single-digit numbers if they keep at this pace by the next election, which would be nice. I'd like to see the Liberals obliterated from the House of Commons. But look how much more damage can we sustain from these hammerheads? Two more years? Boy, or possibly three. Don't forget, we're in the parliamentary system. He can actually hang on for five years if uh, he really wanted to stretch it out as much as possible. Uh, so let's see. Uh, Dave D'Souza saying, what are the chances of a vote of confidence so we can get Trudeau on the road? I'd say uh, practically none. Uh, you would need the NDP to participate in that. And Jagmeet Singh has shown no interest in uh, breaking up the agreement that he has with the Liberals right now. Because that's the closest the NDP will ever get to power and Singh knows it. So he'll talk big and, and act low, as he always has been. He'll critique Trudeau, but he'll never bring him down. The only thing that's going to bring Trudeau down, clearly it's not himself because he's too stupid to realize how stupid he is, is his own caucus. They have to do it. Uh, you know, conservatives are always criticized because uh, they tend to pull down their own leaders, and it's true, and they do it perhaps a little too quickly and with a little too much damage. But at times with every party, eventually you've got to show the leader the door if they don't realize that they need to go to it. And these liberals in caucus... They're going to end up on the unemployment line just as much as Trudeau. I mean, look at the disgraces that are happening right now. I'm sure some of them have got to be getting ready to say, look, i got to save my own butt. This guy's got to go. That'll be the only chance. And that wouldn't lead to an election. That would just lead to a new liberal leader and a period in between. But uh, it wouldn't necessarily mean a, a big change immediately either. But it would be the end of him at least. Because, I mean, again, like I said, this, this party is floundering. They really are. The government is out of control. They, they don't know what each arm is doing. They don't know what's happening. Everything they touch turns to crap and we're paying the price for it. Uh, see commenter David uh, Fleischmann saying, uh, many ex-German soldiers in brackets Nazis emigrated to Canada after World War II. They lived and worked in Canada. The government at the time led them into Canada. Do we blame the past government on this? Well, you know, if you look back on it, there, there were a number of uh, people who fought in the war and yes, on the side of Germany uh, with the Waffen-SS actually, I believe that was covered in the 50s. They determined that they hadn't, they weren't going to call these guys war criminals, but they weren't exactly sanctioning them either. But they were saying, okay, it's done. We're, we're leaving it where it is. And, and you know, there's no sense turning back the clock. And at this point, going down, chasing down 98-year-olds and trying, because some people are saying you should be arrested or, uh, you know, uh, sent back to Poland for to face justice. You know, no, it's just... Let him and his God, if he has one, and his conscience deal with whatever happened then, along with the others at this point. The bottom line, though, is they aren't appropriate to bring in front of the House of Commons. That's the issue. That's the problem. Uh, you know, you should have let the, nobody should have ever heard of this guy outside of his own friends and family until he passed on of old age. But now, suddenly, he's one of the most uh, famous men on earth and not in a good way. All right, let's turn the page and get on to something, though. I, I have been uh, looking forward to this conversation. Like I said, we get distracted with all of this, this haywire stuff coming out of the House of Commons, but we've got a lot of important stuff happening otherwise. So we've got Paige McPherson with the, the Fraser Institute on, and they put out a, a great study recently, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing this. We aren't talking enough. We didn't talk enough before the pandemic measures happened on cost-benefit, but at least now that we have the benefit of hindsight, let's look at these things and what the impacts were so that Presumably, if there's another such event, we can uh, do things differently. Uh, hello, Paige. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad you came on. So uh, kind of as I, I framed it there, so you called it uh, the forgotten demographic, uh, and you focused particularly on uh, children in school with the amount of lost time uh, 
uh, and, and of the impacts that had. I mean, we can't pretend there was zero impact, but you guys actually dug in to see what those impacts were then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've often heard the refrain that policymakers, when it came to COVID and school closures, were doing the best with the information that they had at the time. So what our report really looks into uh, is what information exactly did policymakers, including governments across Canada, we looked at each provincial government, including in Alberta, where you are, um, looking at what did they know exactly? And also, when did they know it? Did they have any information that would guide their policymaking? Or were they really just flying blind? And I think it's very reasonable to say that, okay, within the first, let's say, one, two, maybe even three months, um, there wasn't a lot of good data. There was a lot of, uh, you know, uncertainty and fear um, during that period in the pandemic. Um, and so school closures happened. But the reality is that in Canada, and including Alberta, schools were closed in Alberta well into January 2022. So that's spanning three school years. Um, in other parts of Canada, they were closed up until February 2022. Um, and so just to put that into context, that is 110 days minimum that Alberta students missed due to school closures related to the pandemic, which began in March of 2020. And our report really found that there was a, no good reason, no evidence-informed reason to believe that school closures uh, would help uh, in terms of the health and safety of children or even necessarily stopping the spread of COVID-19. Um, and certainly we, um, we knew very early on, um, if we're being really, really conservative in what we're saying, by December 2020, at the um, latest, that there was almost no um, significant health risk to children of COVID-19, and yet governments continued to close schools. So they really didn't let the data inform their response. So, I mean, we, we all, well, okay, there, again, there was a lot of uh, conflicting stories and everything going on at the time. But as you said, it was starting to become pretty clear. We kind of got very fortunate that among infectious diseases, this one was one that seemed to leave children alone, at least for the most part. Uh, but I mean, another, when, when that was brought up often people would say, well, yes, but they're putting the teachers at risk or they're adding to spread and they'll bring it home to their household and put grandma and grandpa at risk or things like that. So did open times with school contribute to the general infection of the population or could a link be found? The short answer is that we there's really no clarity in the data. There's really no good evidence to say, yes, school closures worked um, when we're looking in hindsight now in terms of stopping the spread. Um, there, there's certainly some speculation that they might have had some impact, but there's really um, no uh, good scientific data showing that they worked. And that's in, from the epidemiological review, that portion of our paper. Um, also, it wasn't like we had never thought about school closures before 2020. Um, school closures had been studied in terms of uh, a review of the existing data when it came to coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, but before uh, COVID-19, also uh, in the context of influenza. And those, the same, it was very inconclusive. The really, there, like I said, there was no good evidence that school closures would work um, for, for what we had hoped that they would do or what policymakers had hoped that they would do. What was also very clear from the start was that school closures um, or, in other words, missed classroom time would have negative impacts on children from an academic perspective, from a mental health perspective. Um, 
social outcomes, severe absenteeism. These are all of the things that we are now seeing. And, and the other side of our paper, what we look at uh, following school closures, the consequences that children have faced and are continuing to face. Um, but the fact is that policymakers um, in the Alberta government and right across Canada and the Western world, if they had um, done their due diligence and looked into this information, it was there um, ahead of time. We know that missed classroom time does have severe consequences for kids. And like I said, 110 days minimum of missed classroom time in Alberta, that's not including if your school had an outbreak, which would be two kids or more with a positive COVID test, um, or if your your kid had the sniffles and therefore they couldn't go to school because they had a COVID symptom for however long it took them to get over the sniffles. So that is a, a minimum. Kids actually, in effect, missed quite a lot more time than that. And that does have a negative impact. Well, absolutely. And I, I guess something that probably lended to your study, though, was the fact that uh, every province was quite different for the amount of time. You had a widespread. There was 10 weeks in BC at a minimum and uh, 27 weeks in Ontario and sort of everything in between. So I imagine that gave you some data and information to really see the differential and impacts with the, the, the provinces that have less closing, fewer closures than the others. Absolutely. So um, in terms of the academic impacts, uh, for example, what I will stress is that this is a very preliminary look. A lot of what I do in my role at the Fraser Institute is look at standardized test score data and provinces more or less halted standardized testing um, during COVID and that during sort of the school closure period, which we know is a very long period, and they're only just starting to um, reinstate and get those tests back into action. So the data that we have is sort of a preliminary peek into the window, um, but we do know that there was um, impacts, particularly on uh, math scores. This is something that we found quite striking in our paper. It was um, in Ontario and Nova Scotia, which are the two provinces which did close schools for the longest period of time, um, that math scores were did seem to be quite impacted. In Alberta, um, we looked at the grade six um, provincial achievement test scores across all subjects, there were some minor declines between 2018-19, so the first uh, or the last year not impacted by uh, COVID school closures, um, compared with 2021-2022, which, which was um, the first year um, where there, you're not seeing um, the, or well, I guess there were still school closures, but where we have that good test score data that we can look at. So we did see a minor decline across all subjects. In addition, the Calgary Board of Education um, reported that the number of students who passed the diploma exams, which are a, a necessity for graduation. So this is a very important exam for students and, and therefore this is quite a significant result. In math 31, it declined by 18%. Um, so in 2021, 22, only 63.6% of Alberta grade 12 students who took that exam actually passed it. And in 2018-19, uh, and that was, the, that, that was the same change from 2018-19 to 2021-22, they also saw a decline in the uh, English 31 exam, a decline by, uh, by 9%. So we, we, we did see some significant learning loss um, in provinces that did close schools for long periods of time. But really any lost classroom time, even if the school closures were short, would have an impact. And we also saw impacts in terms of severe absenteeism, students who were actually out of school more than they were in school. Um, the only province that really reported that um, in a formal way was Ontario. They did see an increase in severe absenteeism, but we've seen from the UK and the US that where severe absenteeism, so students not coming back to school, 
um, where it actually increased in the first school closure year, it actually grew even larger um, in the, the following year, even if school closures hadn't continued. So those, those effects were really compounding. We also saw that mental health impacts in kids um, in terms of StatsCan data, the Mental Health Commission of Canada did a broad survey and found that the youngest kids who were at the lowest physical health risk from COVID-19 actually faced the greatest um, rates self-reported of severe anxiety and depression um, and other really negative um, mental health impacts. And they actually were the longest lasting Contrast that with the oldest segment of the population who was the most at physical health risk of COVID-19. Um, they, the, they had a, a spike at the, the start in terms of their, their severe anxiety, but it quickly dissipated and the rates were actually significantly lower than we saw in the youth. So that's why we called the paper the, the forgotten demographic. Uh, it's really that children are bearing a lot of the burden of these COVID-19 school closures and lockdown policies. It's actually lasting quite a long time in terms of those impacts on kids, whereas we're just not seeing that in the older demographics. Yeah, and I mean, the, the academic impact is somewhat easier to measure when we have standardized testing and, and, and we can see some correlation. The more difficult but possibly more distressing is the social impact. You touched a little upon, I see one of our commenters, uh, Anne McCormack said her, their 14 year old committed suicide, uh, you know, the weekend before school starts, September 20th. Uh, you know, the, the individual cases vary all over the place, but it's certainly, there's a lot of vulnerable children. They, they, they're suffering from, you know, anxiety. It's a difficult time. Suicide is always a, a risk and things such as that at the best of times. And when you disrupt it with something like this and so much fear and, and uh, separation from their social peers, there, there's it's unquestionable that there's been an impact, but, uh, you know, it's, I guess, difficult to quantify just how much it was. Yes, you're right. And that's, that's a, that's a really tragic outcome. Um, it's, it's also not an isolated thing. We did see that there were um, emergency rooms, for example, uh, in Calgary, said that there was an emergency, uh, the emergency room doctors there, I forget which hospital it was, but they reported um, a, a significant increase in uh, people who came in, youth who came in um, due to suicide attempts and self-harm. Um, those those mental health commission of canada surveys and stats can surveys and also um complemented by um camh the center for addictions and mental health in ontario did ontario specific studies all really finding the same things that kids were certainly facing um severe anxiety and depression they they were those rates went up um rates of reported self-harm or thoughts of suicide did go up amongst youth um and and that that is a really really tragic outcome the other thing that i found interesting when i was reviewing that survey data because this was another common refrain that, oh, it's just anxiety because of COVID-19, because of the pandemic. They're afraid of the virus. They're afraid of the impact that the virus is going to have on their loved ones. That was not what the youth uh, survey data showed. It really showed that youth were, were much more concerned about isolation, um, family stress from that isolation of being you know, inside the house, not seeing their friends, missing school. It was not, you know, the fear of COVID-19 of the virus itself was actually quite low on the list of concerns for youth in this survey data. And that is, you know, that's really the tragic outcome is that it wasn't the virus. It was the policy response to the virus by governments, including the Alberta government, um, that that really negatively impacted children. 
So as you said, there was already data on how school closures impact children. Now there's certainly a whole much larger set of data to, to look at and, and the impacts. Uh, have you seen indications that governments are going to be embracing this? I'm certain you've been sharing it and sending it their way, but uh, do you think hopefully they've learned from this? So if there's another similar event, they, they won't necessarily react as quickly with school closures. Well, I certainly hope that that is the case. Um, the The fact is that, you know, there really hasn't been any sort of official national account of school closures. Um, okay, let's look at exactly what happened. You know, our, our paper is is really one of the only of its kind that, that are looking at this. Um, and, and there really hasn't been any kind of government level official assessment of that. And, and that is sort of a depressing fact. And maybe governments are working on that behind the scenes. And I'm not aware of that. Uh, but certainly learning from their mistakes would be good. I think that, you know, we, we really, like I, like I said, in terms of the academic um, student success, you know, we see that there has been learning loss, but it is very preliminary. And we really won't know the full impact of school closures until, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years from now, because effective, even um, the World Bank has, has data showing that if you actually have missed classroom time for kids, it results in basically years of effective schooling lost, which means that um, their, their outcomes in life are going to be worse. They're going to be worse off. So it's going to decrease their lifetime earnings at an individual level. And it actually contributes to a decrease in GDP at, for the country as a whole um, when kids are not in school, the amount that they um, should be in school when they're not learning. Of course, you know, I'll, I'll give the caveat that there are some kids who probably did really well in this environment that actually discovered that they loved homeschooling or something as a result. But there was a lot of kids whose parents had to continue to go to work. They had nobody at home helping them um, with, with their schoolwork. And this is what we see. There are kids who basically disappeared, who just fell out of the school system completely. Um, and so we won't know exactly the societal impacts of that for many years to come. But hopefully governments will pay attention to the fact that school closures are the root issue uh, in a lot of what we, will, we are facing today and what we will face in the years to come. Well, I appreciate you guys studying that and compiling it. I mean, we know it's a matter of if and when. There seems to be some people just eager to hit the panic button at every possible opportunity and, and react to things. Uh, at least there's that much more data that you know some of us can pull up and say, no, hang on a second, hang on. This might not be worth it. Here's what happened last time. Let, let's let's consider a little further before we do something like closing up a school. Uh, th there's much more, of course, you covered in that, and, and it's a great piece. Where, where can people find the, the full study and, and your, your other work? Yeah, thanks so much. So they can find the full study. It's called The Forgotten Demographic uh, at FraserInstitute.org. And you can find all of the rest of our education policy work and all the other policy work that we do. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Pedro. I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us about it. And, uh, the, you know, the fact you guys went in and, and dug that up so we have that resource available and uh, we, we can't undo the past, but hopefully we can learn from it. Thank you. I, I agree. <laughs> Great. Thanks. I'll talk to you again. I hope soon. So as we said, that was uh, Paige McPherson with the Fraser Institute. And yes, it was a very important piece and a very good one. You know, you can't overstate the amount of impact with kids. It's different with them. They're, they're in a de developmental stage. You know, the impact on one of us, a two, three-year period when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, we see the world differently by then. We've developed. It still disrupts our lives. But remember when you're a kid, I mean, a week was an eternity back then. So when you're talking two years of strangeness, of fear, of masking, of closing, of in school and out of school, I, I think the best analogy of showing 
the children's view of timelines. We all know as we get older, you know, as looking at life as like a roll of toilet paper. I know it's an odd analogy, but you know, you start pulling it and it just, it just keeps coming and coming. But once you're getting closer and closer to the end, it's going faster and faster. That's your perception of time as a child. That's why a month just seems like years to you when you're a child. And uh, a month blasts by us now that we're, you know, some of us in our 50s. But again, these are times that you can't get back. You know, you, you can't undo what happened to that child in that period. It's a big percentage of their life was living in that world. I, I really, you know, children are impressionable. They trust us. They want, I think it's, you know, ingrained into us to be listening to our elders and learning from them. So when they're getting this messaging of there's a virus that could kill you if you take your mask off or if you don't wash your hands enough times, you're going to kill your grandma or, you know, I mean, that's the sort of things these kids were terrified. I mean, we, we, we want to be responsible during the pandemic. I can certainly understand we want to reduce transmission. You want to encourage, you know, common sense ideas, hand washing, things like that. But shutting down the schools for weeks and weeks on end. And as we're seeing, we saw very little benefit. If this was a, an infection that had been predominantly harming children, that's a different story. If you look at the history of the Spanish flu, for example, actually, it was children were some of the ones getting terribly hit by that flu. That was a different virus. Perhaps closing schools would make a heck of a lot more sense if it was something like that. But we seem to be stuck on this notion that everybody from cradle to elderly grave should have been separated. And we did a lot of damage. And it wasn't just in the schools. You know, that's what got me too. I mean, remember the imagery of arresting people for playing hockey, for kids for getting out again, for socializing, for, you know, roped off playgrounds. They filled a, a skate park in one city with sand, you know, and the, and the, so, so the skateboarders wouldn't get out. It was just insane. And uh, it's like we always say, if we don't learn at least from these past things, though, we will repeat them. And there are people ready to panic. We, we see that, uh, and, oh, whatever her name is, Neely, whatever, the, the unusual uh, school board member out in Ontario who's always causing a ruckus out there, Kaplan Murr or something like that. But, I mean, she is uh, terrified of COVID. She's masked everywhere she goes. She's kind of like Alberta's Dr. Vipond. She's certain there's a boogeyman around every corner. People like her will close a school in a heartbeat given another chance. So, and, and people... Fear for the safety of their children. If you're getting told by the authorities, you're getting told by the news, you're getting told by everybody, we have to close these schools for their safety. Well, parents will comply, but the impact is huge. That's what we needed was cost-benefit throughout the entire pandemic. And we never did it. We didn't do it before, but at least we're starting to do it after, at least the Fraser Institute is. So I appreciate that on their part. So, okay, I'll turn the page onto something similar, though, and something Dave mentioned. For people across the country might not have... Uh, heard about it. But yeah, Alberta had a huge E. coli breakout in daycares. You know, again, speaking of the safety of our children and uh, the, the irony and weirdness of it with uh, a vegan meatloaf being part of the cause, the E. coli. I mean, it just sounds like it's an oxymoron rate to begin with, but uh, the real meatloaf had uh, infection as well. But it's not funny at all. In reality, hundreds of kids got hit with uh, bad infections. I mean, a, a number of them were in hospital. A number of them got dialysis. They could have some very permanent, uh, you know, kidney damage, things like that. It's a terrible, terrible mess. And everybody's scrambling and pointing fingers and trying to get to the bottom of that. At least they found the root of it. And I, 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 I guess we got a caution against overreaction. That was the most appalling and terrible thing we could think of happening with children in, in care, in daycare. I mean, you, you put your kids there, you don't want them dying of poisoning from the bloody food. 
but people are saying we need more inspectors. We need more cracking down. We need more of this. We need more of that. I, I listened to one person saying every restaurant and kitchen in the whole province needs to have every employee trained in food safety. Okay. I, we need to make sure these things don't happen as very little as reasonably possible. I know people say zero, never. Well, that's not going to happen. We can only mitigate. We can minimize. And uh, we do want to keep up. Like I owned a pub and restaurant. We were regularly inspected. AHS was very thorough. If we'd have been uh, doing things that were really beyond uh, the pale, we would be uh, shut down. I mean, some people are saying, why wasn't this place shut down earlier? It had uh, roaches that were found in it and some other things. Yeah, there's some questions to be asked. Uh, ironically, I mean, that's an indication of a dirty kitchen. There's no doubt about that. But uh, the roaches probably wouldn't have been the cause of the E. coli. If you really look at the, the roots of that, I mean, somebody was infected and wasn't washing their hands after using the washroom. They're preparing food. Yeah, disgusting subject matter on a lunch uh, time show. But uh, like everything else, and again, when we get children involved, all I'm saying is let's not, uh, I mean, we should react strongly, but let's not uh, overreact in the sense of bringing in a bunch more legislation and pressure when we don't necessarily need it. Remember, if you put that expense, I, as I said, I owned a pub, your average margin in that, it's just like the grocery world, it's like 5%. And if you suddenly put that new staff training cost up where you had to train each and every one of them on that multiple day course in food safety, and there's, there's rules, you have to have some staff members with it so that somebody in that kitchen knows how to properly manage the kitchen. That's already there and it's good. If you're requiring that for everybody from the dishwasher to the prep cook to the uh, line cooks and everything, you're going to shoot the cost of operation through the roof in a narrow margin business. It will put some restaurants over the edge and it will put the price of everything up again. Everything comes with a cost. So yeah, let's, let's find out what happened with the kitchen with those kids and things like that, but let's not uh, let the legislators and, and bureaucrats go too wild with extra controls to uh, respond to this. Likewise with school closures, you know, it, it, if we're not seeing as much benefit as we should out of it, then, then, Let's not be uh, doing it again. And it depends on the infection. Things are different every time. If it's a different bug, we might have a, a, a different um, uh, reaction to it. All right, let's see. Let's talk about government efficiency, right? Uh, so this is Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Is this one of the announcements? This one kind of just flew away. I mean, as the government talked about it, it wasn't a bad policy, to be honest. They're talking about giving a GST holiday for uh, the construction of rental projects. But what does that mean exactly? It sounds like if you're building an apartment building, you, you, I guess you'll get a GST break on the materials or some of the contracting or services you got when you built it. And it could add up to about uh, $383 million a year. But they have no idea how many units that will actually lead to. Like I said, reducing taxes is always a good thing. It'll always help. It'll bring down the expenses. But they figure the, the cabinet estimates on how many units this will help facilitate is between the thousands to millions. Yeah, that's the, how wide the spread is. In other words, they have no idea. But hey, error on the side of tax cuts, guys. I'll give you credit for doing one thing right once in a while because it doesn't happen bloody often. But yeah, they got no clue. They got no clue. They, it just matches with everything else this government's doing. They're fumbling along. They're just shooting in all directions, trying to do, trying to save their own butts at this point. The post office, speaking of inefficiency, right? Canada Post, you know, they, they, they kind of made a bit of a comeback. For a few years, they were making a bit of a profit. But now they, for some years running, they've been losing and losing and losing. The last year, they lost $548 million. It's time, I think, to really start seriously considering retiring that dinosaur. It, we don't need it. You know, look at uh, how private 
industry has filled the void. I mean, we don't need letters like we used to. We don't need paper bills like we used to. I know some people still rely on that stuff, but we can start phasing that out. We really don't need it. You can get everything on your phone now. And as far as packages go and everything, Amazon is delivering directly. Pure, you know, Pure Layer is part of Canada Post. You know, but FedEx, all of those other private couriers are doing the job, and they're making money. <laughs> Canada Post, which you would think with such a, an already established network to be able to deliver packages, should be able to take advantage of this new age of so much online ordering and things being delivered. But no, they can't. They can't efficiently do it. They're too bloated with their unions and inefficiency and old ways of doing things. And they're losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, again, government just can't do things right, and they won't. So either way, I just say, let's start looking towards pulling the pin on those guys. We can get to an end on it. Uh, cocaine on a plane. Odd statement in it. I, you you might have seen some of the news. Toronto, uh, The Toronto Sun published a story. I, I, I think, you know, it was almost uh, media trolling. Hey, I'm not above trolling on Twitter and social media and things like that to just kind of poke the hornet's nest a little bit and everything. But there was an internet rumor. It started way back when Justin Trudeau, again, like, you know, his constant <clears throat> catastrophes and problems everywhere and everything he does. He got stuck in India for two extra days because his plane broke down and he was sitting there. And there was a rumor somebody started probably on Facebook or Twitter saying the reason that plane's down is because the Indian authorities found cocaine on it and uh, they're, they're not letting him fly out. It was ridiculous. You know, uh, I'm not saying it's impossible that Trudeau was taking coke. It might explain a lot of things, actually. But uh, look, guys, that didn't happen. Even as, as much as India doesn't like Justin Trudeau, they, they weren't going to send the drug-sniffing dogs on a foreign leader's plane while he's at a G20 summit. Even if there really was a bunch of coke on there, they wouldn't have been in there looking for it. But the Indian media... I, I did a few interviews on some Indian uh, television networks last week, and, and uh, it's an experience, I'll tell you. Uh, they, they are very, uh, they're very biased. I mean, all media's got some biases and everything, but holy cow, these guys are really something else. I sat on those panels, and it's so torqued and high energy. It was kind of fun to sit on them, but they, they play very loose with, uh, with some facts and things. And remember, I am far from a defender of Justin Trudeau. I spend a large part of my shows all the time ripping into him. But somebody on one of those Indian shows the other day said that he had, I love the irony he was playing with it. He said there was credible evidence that there was cocaine on Justin Trudeau's plane and that's why it was held up. This was a foreign, uh, former uh, diplomat from India. Uh, he used the credible evidence term purposely. That was the term that Justin Trudeau used when he stood up and uh, said that uh, India had assassinated somebody on Canadian soil. So there was credible evidence well, you need to prove it. And uh, uh, yeah, yes, you know, so Trevor was saying, yeah, India News Channel seemed to think he was, you know, yes, what I mean, those channels get a lot of traffic. The amount of followers from India I got after doing the, you know, on Twitter and such, after doing those interviews uh, was something else. But uh, don't take that one to the bank, guys. I, I, you know, there's a million reasons to get rid of Justin Trudeau. The uh, mythological story of uh, the cocaine on the plane, though, is probably not real as funny as it kind of sounds to begin with um other stuff uh, up on the western standard site dave mentioned it earlier with target there's a video showing one of the the mobs as he said they're not thieves they're looters breaking into stores and, and just stealing everything they can and going to the door this idiotic left-wing policies of enablement whether it comes to drug use or shoplifting or any of those things have led of course to high crime and high drug use 
yet they still seem mystified about it. So Target, yeah, they're closing stores. In San Francisco there's, and, and throughout the West Coast, there's been Walmarts and all sorts of other stores. They're folding up. They're pulling out. They say, we can't do this. We can't make money. And it's unsafe to staff. It's a nightmare to work there. And you watch some of those videos. It's disturbing. And then there's the other bleeding heart, pissing, moaning liberals. Oh, well, they're... It just shows how hard up people are and they're desperate. No, they aren't. The video showed that in the recent one, it wasn't uh, food they were stealing. It wasn't clothing. It wasn't necessities. They went to Foot Locker because they wanted Nikes. They went to Lululemon because they wanted yoga pants. And they went to the Apple store. Not for apples, this is food. Apple electronic products. Come on, guys. They're thieves. They're looters. It's intolerable. And until people start pushing back, these stores are going to keep closing. And guess what? Stores like Target and that, those were ones that helped people who really were on a lower income because they worked with, uh, you know, uh, large volumes of, of products and they can afford to get things to you cheaper. Now, those retail outlets won't be there. Jobs are lost and people are going to pay more prices for goods. Why? Because of idiotic liberal enablement policies of crime. That's why. You have to charge people if they steal things. You have to punish them. Not talking about public whippings and hangings, but you can't let them off with nothing. And that's what's been happening down there. And this is the consequence that anybody with a quarter of a brain could have seen coming, but a quarter of a brain is a big ask when it comes to people in government on either side of our border. One final thing um, we're seeing is, as things heat up, Dave mentioned that too, with the announcements of emissions caps and things like that. This will be something changing the dynamic in Canada because it's been found now that uh, Ontario, the average household, it's going to be paying another 3300 a year if they get rid of natural gas out there. So it's not just Alberta as the whipping boy anymore. It's going to hurt Ontario. That changes the dynamic. If it was Quebec, we already would have thrown out the emissions caps if they found it was going to hurt them that much. But yes, these caps, this banning, this idiocy of stopping natural gas when we sit on that resource, it's costing everybody from coast to coast, including Ontario. And uh, I think think if voters are going to push back this liberal government this tone deaf government doesn't realize why they're dropping in the polls like a stone it's things like this people can't pay the rent they can't buy food they can't get mortgages and you morons are just adding to every expense with your ideological insane push against the use of fossil fuels even if they make life affordable and livable oh well all right, that's all I've got for you this week, guys. Uh, make sure to tune in a little later. The pipeline will be on. It'll be our panel show. We'll cover a lot more of this sort of stuff. And uh, hey, share all this stuff on your social media channels. We need to get it out there. It's important. Uh, so I appreciate everybody tuning in with me today. And I'll see you all again next week at this time. And we'll see what sort of new craziness we'll have to rant about. Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley remains at 335 Feed wheat is steady at 350, while October corn is unchanged at 350, and November-December corn is trading at 318. In the milling wheat markets, December Minneapolis futures dropped 13.5 cents to 7.53 per bushel, with local hardware at spring bid for October movement at 9.40 per bushel. Looking at canola, November futures added $11.90 at 7.2610 per ton, with delivered buys for October movement at 16.12 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are holding at 36.5 cents per pound, and yellow peas are higher 25 cents at 10.75 a bushel. In the cattle markets, October live cattle are higher 45 cents at 185.25 per hundred weight. For more information on pricing or picked up options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Buscom at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options.
Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.